Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. been following the ministry of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark for, for several weeks now, and for a long time you might have noticed that he stayed right around Galilee with a few brief but, but significant forays into, into Gentile territory, but, but then we hit a major turning point in chapter 8. That was when he asked his disciples the really simple question, who do you say that I am? And then, and then Peter spoke up. And that was the first time anybody besides God or the demons had referred to Jesus as as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who would deliver God's people from bondage. And and from that point on, Jesus has been making a beeline for Jerusalem, where he's going to demonstrate what it means for him to be the Messiah. Well, I say he's been making a beeline, but But verse 1 here tells us it's a little more complicated than that. He's come out of Galilee and into the region of Judea, but now he's crossing the Jordan River. Now, if you were to look at a map of Israel, you would see that he's, well, to put it mildly, he's going the long way. But there's a reason for that. All through this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus is instructing his disciples on what it means to follow the Messiah. And the journey itself is actually kind of an object lesson. It, it doesn't go the way you'd expect. It, it takes strange turns like crossing the Jordan. And the responsibility of Jesus' disciple is simply to follow the Messiah's lead. Now, as they were traveling their circuitous route, crowds gathered around Jesus. And so he stopped to teach them, as he always did. And then the Pharisees came along to stir up trouble, as they always did. Look at verse 2. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, divorce was a much debated topic at the time, (laughs) a lot like it is now. Jewish rabbis debated specifically when a man was permitted to divorce his wife. Now, an important thing to note here is that they did not debate whether divorce was ever permissible at all. They all assumed it was, based on our Old Testament reading this morning, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So they they didn't debate if, they debated when it was permissible for a man to put his wife out of the house. And the rabbis fell into three different camps. First, there was the camp of Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Shammai said that you could only divorce your wife if she committed some kind of sexual sin. That's what he thought based on the words, something indecent in Deuteronomy 24. Well, then there was Rabbi Hillel, who interpreted those same two words, something indecent, to mean that you could divorce your wife over any annoyance, even if all she did was burn your dinner. And, and if you think that's bad, the third option was to go with Rabbi Akiva, who said, based on the fact that in Deuteronomy, the 
the the woman finds no favor in the eyes of her first husband that 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 you could divorce your wife even if there was nothing wrong with her you could divorce her just because you found someone prettier so the pharisees wanted to see where jesus would land maybe he would have an an unpopular opinion and they could they could pounce on him for it but there's probably something else going on here too now, jesus has just meandered into the region where John the Baptist used to preach. He's back in King Herod's territory. And and what did King Herod do to John the Baptist? He had him beheaded. And why did he do that? Well, because John had called Herod to repentance for an unlawful divorce and remarriage. So these Pharisees might have been hoping to catch Jesus saying something that would indirectly condemn Herod, and then maybe Herod would do to him like he did to John the Baptist. But Jesus still managed to surprise them. The first point that I want to I w- I draw out from the text is, is this. What God has brought together, let not man separate. Why? Because that's God's design for marriage. Look at verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. As expected, the Pharisees cite our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. But Jesus sees something in that text that the Pharisees don't. Now, in itself, this Old Testament passage is really fascinating. It's a, it's a very long, complex, if-then statement. If a man divorces his wife for some reason, and if she marries somebody else, and if her second husband divorces her as well, then the first husband may not take her back. It's a, it's a really specific scenario. Some interpreters think this law is meant to, to close a loophole. Some ancient Near Eastern good-for-nothings might have figured that if they just divorced and remarried their wives, that could be a technically legal way around the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But then this law comes in to close the loophole and ensure that Israelite men treat their wives with with dignity and respect. Alternatively, some scholars have, have made the case that this law is actually about stealing. The case laws of Deuteronomy can be divided up into ten sections, each one roughly corresponding to one of the Ten Commandments. And this passage actually falls into the section corresponding to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. So it may be that when the first husband wants to remarry the woman, it's, it's actually because he wants to get his hands on the alimony from the second husband. In that case, the point of this law is to say to the husband, absolutely not. You sent her away. You treated her like she was unclean. And so you can't have a dime of her money. Either way, we, tra- we, we interpret this passage. There's, there's one glaring point we need to get. It does not comment on whether or when divorce is permissible. This is what Jesus saw that the Pharisees didn't. He saw the big picture. The Pharisees were trying to pull this passage out of context and, and make it say things it didn't say. So Jesus points to a different, more foundational text from Moses, Genesis 1 and 2. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus steps back from all the lawyering of the Pharisees and asks, what is marriage in the first place? The answer is that marriage is the reason God created two distinct biological sexes. Marriage is a covenantal relationship that that takes precedence over everything else. The husband's responsibility to his wife is is greater than his responsibility to his own parents. And, and, And that was a countercultural claim at the time Moses wrote those words. Israel was a patriarchal society where fathers maintained authority over all their children into adulthood. When a woman married a man, she would move in with him, probably into his grandfather's house. But the scriptures say, actually, the husband's primary responsibility is to his wife, not to the patriarch. The union goes so deep that in some sense, once a couple gets married, they're no longer two distinct people. The two parties of a marriage covenant are to be so devoted to each other that to take care of the other is like taking care of self. Now look what Jesus says next in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God is the one who unites each husband to his wife. So to divorce a spouse is not only going against God's general design, but, but even against God's specific acts of providence. God brought you together, and God means for you to stay together. Keeping all that in mind, Jesus did not concede the Pharisees' point in verse 5. He wasn't saying, yes, God permitted you to get divorced, but that's only because your hearts are hard. That's what he meant. He would have been agreeing with their misinterpretation of Deuteronomy. He's actually pointing out that the Pharisees had gotten Moses all wrong. He's saying, you've got the whole thing backwards. Moses didn't give you that law to allow for divorce. He gave it to you to mitigate its consequences because he knew you were going to get divorced anyway. But in the beginning, before there was sin and hard-heartedness, marriage was an everlasting covenant. That was God's design. The second point I want to highlight is, is this. What God has brought together, let not man separate. Why? Because that's God's design for marriage and because marriage points to something greater. Look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. The disciples were as surprised as anybody to hear what Jesus said to the Pharisees. So, so later on, they, they asked him to clarify. Jesus, <laughs> it, it almost sounded like you were saying that a man should never divorce his wife. <laughs> and that, that can't possibly be what you meant, right? Then Jesus hits them with this in verse 11. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wow. So that is what he meant. Jesus' demand for faithfulness goes far beyond our expectations. Now, you may be wondering something. I I thought Jesus made at least one exception, didn't he? You're not misremembering. In 
Matthew's account of this teaching, he grants one exception. And Paul in 1 Corinthians suggests that there may be other exceptions as well. For our purposes, it's enough to say that Jesus does not recognize no-fault divorce. That's, that's not a category in Jesus's mind. But, but I want you to notice what Mark is doing here now. now he, he must have been an excellent pastor because he clearly understands people. You see, Mark knows that as soon as he gives us an exception to the rule, our natural tendency is to start asking questions about the exception. Just like the Pharisees, we want to forget the main point and focus on the minutiae. Why? Because Jesus demands radical faithfulness, and we are naturally faithless people. But there's, there's a reason Jesus demands radical faithfulness. It's, it's not arbitrary. It's, it's because he is radically faithful. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is described as a bridegroom. And the church is described as his bride. Just, just like a husband, Jesus chooses his bride. Just like a husband, Jesus goes and prepares a place for the bride to live with him. And just like a bride, the church is right now being prepared through sanctification to, to look the most beautiful she's ever been on her wedding day. And, and this picture isn't unique to the New Testament either. God describes him as Israel's husband in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. The most common metaphor for idolatry in the Old Testament, going all the way back to Exodus, is adultery. Idolatry is when Israel cheats on her husband. But the really interesting thing about this analogy is that it goes the opposite way from how you'd expect. According to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's not that the relationship between Christ and the church is supposed to be like a marriage. It's the other way around. A marriage is supposed to be like Christ and the church. The divine bridegroom and his chosen bride cast a large shadow over the earth, and that shadow is earthly marriage. So then the, the question is, what shape should that shadow be? What is, what is Jesus like as a husband? Well, according to scripture, he's, he's a husband who gives up his rights and privileges for the sake of his bride. That's, that's Philippians 2. He's a husband who gives his bride everything she needs for her health, safety, and happiness. That's Ephesians 1. He's a husband who is willing to give everything for his bride, even his own life. Jesus is radically faithful. So, so if our marriages are the shadow cast by Christ's relationship to the church, then, then that means our marriages are, to some extent, evangelistic. Part of the way that Christian husbands and wives share the gospel is by depicting the gospel in their homes. And, and, and what a witness that is to our world. Think of, think of all the ways that marriage is, is broken and distorted, According to the CDC, the divorce rate in the United States fell by half between the years 2000 and 2020. That sounds fantastic until you realize that the marriage rate also fell by half during that time. More and more people in our culture are, are avoiding marriage, and they're doing it for a variety of reasons. A lot of people just don't want to make the long-term commitment. They'd prefer to have an easy out of any relationship. 
you don't have to get a lawyer involved in your breakup if you never got married in the first place. Other people look at the way so many marriages have ended and despair of the whole institution. 100% of marriages end in death or divorce, and they would rather be spared the heartache. Other people grew up with, with parents who had dysfunctional marriages, and they saw the way that a bad marriage can, can hurt not only the married couple, but, but also everyone around them. And they decided as adults that they, they didn't want any part of that. Now, now, in that context, imagine a marriage that really reflects, as, as much as humanly possible, the radical faithfulness of Christ to the church. A committed, mutually upbuilding, monogamous relationship where, where two people commit to live with each other, to serve each other, to, to forgive each other. That goes against all of our cynical culture's expectations and that's because the last thing our culture expects is the gospel. I've got one more point to make, and it's this. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Why? Well, because that's God's design for marriage, and because marriage points to something greater, and because children inherit God's kingdom. I promise that'll make sense in a second. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing their children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Who is they? Who's, who's bringing their children to Jesus? Well, they're the crowds. Jesus was teaching in verse 1. Remember, Mark likes to use, use flashbacks and, and flash forwards to make his points. He flashed forward to the private conversation Jesus had, Jesus had with his disciples in verses 10 to 12. And now he's flashing back to Jesus and the crowds. These aren't two unrelated stories. This is, this is what happened immediately after Jesus' dispute with the Pharisees over divorce. Now, now, keep in mind that Jesus and the disciples have been doing a lot of traveling lately, and they didn't have cars. They've been walking for miles and miles. And, and every time they come to a new place, a crowd gathers around Jesus. Every time, again and again and again. And Jesus, Jesus is so polite. Jesus, Jesus is just too nice to send these crowds away. So every time, without fail, when they gather around him, he goes right to teaching them. So, so the disciples probably imagine that they're doing Jesus a favor here. All right, everybody, 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 back up. Please take your kids somewhere else. Can't you see Jesus is tired? I mean, I know I don't like to have little kids climbing all over me when I'm exhausted. And these are little kids here. Luke, who's, who's always more precise with his language than Matthew and Mark, actually uses the word for infants in this story. We should be picturing babies and toddlers and preschoolers. But Jesus surprises his disciples, as was his custom. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus was indignant. This is the only time Jesus has said to feel indignant. 
This is the same emotion the ten disciples felt when James and John had the audacity to request that Jesus give them the seats of honor on either side of his throne. This is the same emotion the dinner guests felt at Simon the leper's house when when this random woman showed up, uninvited, and wasted a whole jar of extremely expensive perfume by by pouring it all over Jesus' head. What do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? And what is the one thing the Bible tell us made Jesus feel this way? Adults dismissing children as undeserving of his attention. At a time when children were on the bottom rung of the social ladder, Jesus affirmed their value. In a moment when anyone would have regarded children as an inconvenience at best and and, and a nuisance at worst, Jesus went out of his way to welcome them to himself. Part of what it means to be like Christ is to love children. Part of what it means to belong to this community is that you're in a covenant relationship with children. If you're you're a member of this church, you are a member with the children of other believers here in this community. And each of us has a responsibility to do whatever is in our power to lead our church's children to Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to to children. Now look at this verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God like a child? Well, think about what a child contributes to a household. I have three little kids in my household and I, I can't imagine being without them. They When they leave To visit grandparents, it it only takes a day or two before I start to get lonely. But But I don't love them for what they contribute. Because, frankly, they hardly contribute anything at all. They they don't cook, they don't clean, they don't pay the bills. Kids take a lot and they don't give much back. And that is what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. It means to approach the king of kings with the recognition that you have nothing to offer him. You can only receive whatever he would graciously give you. In other words, by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of works. Now, what does any of this have to do with divorce? Well, The bride of Christ enters the marriage covenant the same way a child enters the kingdom. She brings nothing to the table. Of herself, she is poor. Of herself, she is unfaithful. Of herself, she is not lovely. But still, Christ chooses her. Jesus' radical faithfulness is not contingent on what his bride can contribute Nor is his ongoing faithfulness contingent on the bride eventually contributing something. Who could possibly give the God of the universe something he doesn't already have? The psalmist says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If, If he were hungry, and he never is, he wouldn't even bother to tell us. He can take care of himself. He doesn't 
need a wife. That's not why he marries the church. He marries the church so that he can give her everything, all his blessings, all his riches, all his glory, all of himself. He does not trade. He does not barter. He only gives. Jesus doesn't give any exceptions for divorce in this passage because even when the bride gives him good reason to send her away, he remains faithful. Even when the bride brings nothing to the table, he stays true. And that is the ideal that we ought to be shooting for in our marriages. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that divorce is never permissible. There there are times when it is biblically justified and, and times where it might even be impossible to avoid. But the question that Jesus calls us to ask is not, is it okay if I leave? The question he calls us to ask is, is it possible for me to stay? What God has joined together, let not man separate. Why? Because, because that's God's design for marriage. Because marriage has a greater significance. And because children inherit God's kingdom. Now, if you're married, the application of this text is fairly obvious. You have an evangelistic responsibility to remain together, to, to love each other like Jesus and the church. That's one way that we're called to witness to a broken world that, that does not understand the gospel. If you're, if you're not married, you might ask yourself what you can do to support your friends' marriages. How can you help your married friends love each other for the sake of the gospel? Sometimes when I'm online, I'll, I'll, I'll see forums where people ask for anonymous relationship device and advice, and, 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 and they'll ask something like, I really love my husband, but he's been having a really hard time at work lately. His, his company's going through a transition, and so he's been really stressed out and, and really busy and really forgetful. And Well, yesterday was my birthday, and, and, and he forgot completely forgot and, and he didn't get me anything and I've, I've been really upset about it. I felt really hurt. What should I do? And then you scroll down to the comments and the comment section is just full of people saying things like, lawyer up, dump him. You need to find yourself somebody who will remember your birthday. Because <laughs> the, world, the world doesn't care about preserving the marriage covenant. It's, it's disposable to them. As soon as it's not fun anymore, just drop it. Find something else. But it shouldn't be that way with us. So, so even if you're not married, God calls you to be a wise counselor to your married friends, pushing them to, to resolve conflict and to live out the gospel in their homes. But, but I don't want you to think that this text is, is really just for married people and that it only indirectly applies to singles. Just whether you're married, divorced, single, or celibate, what Jesus is ultimately presenting here is salvation by grace alone. The bridegroom is radically faithful. His love for you is not based on what you bring to the table. You don't have to give him anything to keep him around. All he asks is the humility 
to take from him all the gifts that he wants to give. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's for you. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 